Yeah, so welcome back, everyone. And uh, while people are still joining in, uh, I'll just invite you in to maybe kind of in your own mind and heart and um, bring to uh, your mind this uh, sutta that we spoke about uh, two days ago. And this is the sutta of the simile of a heartwood. Using heartwood uh, simile to describe how uh, one might keep us going on the path and not stop short, grabbing the twigs and leaves or barks, sapwoods or softwoods, but keep going. So we want to open it up uh, just to see if there are any questions on our comments, your own reflections that you like to share um, based on what you received from the last class, as well as maybe some, some of you might have read the sutta in between. So um, yeah, we're going to open it up for uh, a little bit to begin our day together. And Ying, maybe if people want, they could put some just general comments in the chat box too. Like, I reread it and now it makes more sense, or I'm still confused, or, yeah. oh, wait, there was a sutta, I was supposed to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Great, yes. Uh, those who are able to chat it in our chat box, please do so. And uh, you can also do the voice and raise your hand and I see that hand, oh, hand has their hand up. Okay, whoever had a hand up, please unmute. Yeah, good oh, hand up. Okay. Um, um, yeah, I think I didn't bring this up on Tuesday because I thought it was inappropriate, and now I'm feeling like is it inappropriate? Um, I'm struck by both suttas feeling. Um, like there's a real superiority conceit and extractionist <laughs> vibe. Um, yeah, I think I, I could have, I, I wanted to say, I, I, to, to say something clear, to try to say something clearer than I said on Tuesday. You know, the heartwood is not separate from the sapwood and from the bark. Um, they're, they're relational. Um, you can't have one without the other. Um, and as an aside, it's beautiful that the heartwood is, you know, there's something related to age and maturity. The heartwood is developed through the life of the, of the tree. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the, the extractionist aspect of that one and the, the, the betterness, the, the 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 way in which isn't there a way to feel good about the Dharma without putting down everybody else and everything else and 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 is so struck by the examples the spikenard and and um, sandalwood are both are both endangered species now. <laughs> um, and and what is that? That sort of why do they have to be the best? Why you know they're wonderful? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And yes, it's an analogy and yes, I'm literal and I run into problems because of that. But yeah, I just wanted to yeah. put that into the room. I, I really, really appreciate, uh, Hendo, you naming this in terms of, um, various ways that might evoke in us, uh, with the similes. And it is quite, uh, uh, can be quite provocative, uh, in, how one might relate to this kind of assemblies. And I would, um, yeah, invite you to kind of explore with this for sure as a way to uh, maybe uh, understand and associate kind of how we relate to this assembly that may be supportive and and how we might relate to this simile that may not. And one of the things in this sutta, in terms of uh, this pieces that uh, kind of gets shed in terms of going deeper and deeper in the hardwood, maybe it's less about uh, what to get rid of, but rather this hardwood is... Um, and there is a function of the heartwood that is being um, expressed that is bringing a sense of long-lasting well-being. And uh, the it's not less about heartwood is better <laughs> than uh, than um, the twigs and uh, and other pieces, but rather there is a function of what this heartwood is. Is bringing out, and uh, in our practice, then part of this is to see the effect of the practice in ourselves, and uh, over time, we'll see the beauty of all of this different aspects of the trees and uh, different um, situations that we're meeting. And I see uh, Diana had uh, unmuted. If you'd like yeah. to say a few words, please. And David unmuted you, so uh, maybe all of us will weigh in here. <laughs> so thank you, Handel, for your uh, comment. I appreciate it very much. And I'll just share kind of like how I was thinking about it. I was like applying some of these Buddhist teachings, some foundational teachings on it. And in the beginning, it describes the person as seeking heartwood. So it's... and. And then you used extractive, but in my mind, I was using the word discernment. Like, okay, this is what's helpful. It's going to help end the suffering that earlier in the sutta the person was talking about. And these other things are not going to help the uh, ending of suffering. So I was using that type of language, kind of like just to evaluate, is this what's going to be helpful or is it not going to be helpful? And we could use this Buddhist term like kusala, right? Wholesome or skillful, helpful these healthy, those types of things. And then this idea of superiority conceit. Um, I would say that this Buddha, the Buddhist path that's inside, that's part of the Theravada condition, very much has this superiority conceit in the terms of exactly how I was saying, this is helpful, this is not helpful. We see that over and over again, this, kind, this uh, delineation, kind of like really a binary 
And I would say maybe this was a pedagogical tool the Buddha was using. And for us as practitioners, we recognize, oh, it's not quite as black and white, but as a way to help drive home the point, he was trying to make it black and white. So I just offer that as something to consider. Yeah. And maybe David has something to say. Yeah. You know, I just want to follow on what you've just said, Diana, and flag something for later because I'll speak about it later. But one of the things when I reread the sutta this morning, just a couple of hours ago, that struck me and that I wanted to mention is that the comparison made to followers of the Buddha and people who are are not followers of the Buddha and the simile of the sandalwood and the black orris root aren't in the Buddha's voice. They're in Ganaka Moggallana's voice. And I actually think that's quite um, significant. The Buddha doesn't assent or and doesn't disagree. Why are they put in another voice? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of return to that when, when we talk about that later. But uh, I think it's I think it's purposeful and um, doesn't mean it elsewhere in the suttas. You don't have some of the same in the Buddha's voice. But here at any rate, it's uh, it's in Ganaka Moggallana's voice. Just that. Thank you. I, I see uh, Aaron and Kevin had a hand up. Maybe that would be the last one. The, your, all of your comments have been so rich that this is almost superfluous, but what came to mind for me is, uh, in rereading is, um, uh, and speaking of non, uh, voices other than the Buddha's, right above the, um, five daily reflections in my daily practice sheet is a quote from Sri Nishrakadatta Maharaj, have only one desire, the desire for freedom. And, for me, that's what I've been so struck by in both of these suttas is this unrelenting samvega of the Buddhas not stopping, not even stopping with states like the jhanas that could be so seductive and that his own teachers um, uh, felt were final liberation. And for me, that's the positive reframing that I get. For me, that's what the heartwood is evoking. Mm, thank you. Thank you for the beautiful reflection. And I'm going to pass it on to Kim, who's going to offer some teachings on our next sutta. Great, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate the way our initial discussion kind of flowed smoothly from reviewing of MN29 to um, starting to talk about MN107 which is our second text, and I'll be talking a bit about that now. I just want to give something of an overview of um, MN107 in a way that connects it to what was discussed last time regarding MN29. So that sutta was about, uh, as we said, stopping short or somehow um, accepting certain attainments as the final goal instead of continuing on with this you know, desire for liberation and allowing that to fully come to fruition. So we practice all the way until the heartwood. And then, and then at that point, I think we would know what heartwood is and we can speculate before that, but when it's, it's, let's say practicing into the heartwood in order to really understand what it is. So that might be farther than we think, Um, but it does unfold if we just keep going. So MN107 takes a different angle on how we might have difficulty, let's say, getting all the way to the goal. In that case, the image is more about 
veering off is the, the term that we use, not sticking to the path, but going in another direction such that we don't end up arriving. It's a straightforward enough image that I think we can understand. You know, if you're in, you want to get to Seattle from San Francisco, you should not go south. That doesn't work. Uh, I mean, you have to go a really long way all the way around. I guess on a sphere, it all works. But, you know, um, so you would want to go north. But and even if you do go north, um, you don't want to veer off to the east, right? And you might still not get there, if, even if you started out north. So, you know, it's meant to be, I think, kind of straightforward like that. So MN107, as uh, David already pointed to, is the the discourse to Ganaka Mogalana. And Ganaka means accountant. So this is the discourse to the accountant named Mogalana. And that's a different Mogalana than the, you may have heard of Sariputta and Mogalana as the Buddha's chief disciples. This is a different one. I guess Mogalana was a popular name in ancient India, something like that. So um, this Mogalana is a Brahmin, and uh, he approaches the Buddha by pointing out that among Brahmins, there's kind of a, a gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress in the area of study, because the, that's what the Brahmins did, is they received these um, oral teachings, and they were meant to memorize them, and to uh, be able to say them, and do certain rituals in a very exact way. And so you can imagine a person trains and trains in order to get better and better at this. And then he makes an analogy also as an accountant. He says also in accountancy and archery and other professions of the time, there's the idea that somebody is gradually practicing, gradually getting better training uh, in their profession. And so then he asks the Buddha, well, can your training program be understood like this? And so the Buddha uh, gets the concept, okay, this is what, this is the way this guy is thinking. And so he says, yes, actually, my training could be thought about that way. He's meeting Ankamogalana um, where he is, and he's using, as Diana mentioned, this kind of pedagogical tool of uh, a training with different stages so that he can connect with him. But he doesn't quite describe his training in the same way. The first thing he does is he gives an analogy, the first image in the sutta, of a uh, horse training a horse so training a thoroughbred horse and that is not quite the same idea if you think about it there's a this concept of a thoroughbred horse but is not you know not well trained is that you, you need to train it to uh, certain kinds of restraint in order to be able to be ridden and to be used and so forth and so we have a different idea maybe than studying more and more or counting higher and higher and doing more and more complex math kind of a little bit different concept, not so much about acquiring knowledge or acquiring anything, really. We have more this idea of letting go, or in this case, actually restraint at the beginning of the path. So, you know, what is it, what is it that we're, we're going to talk a little bit about what that means in this case? Um, this idea, I'll just to reiterate it, of going through different stages is a pedagogical pedagogical tool. We know that the line, that the path is not really linear and step-by-step. Step. Anyone who's practiced for a while, I think, has a sense of this. Um, and yet, nonetheless, there is a flow to it. You know, there are things that you encounter earlier on and things that you encounter later on in a broad sense. 
even if the details are a little bit different and if things keep feeding back and informing each other, nonetheless, there is kind of a sense. So the Buddha picks up on that aspect of it. Yeah, okay, there is a way in which the path is developmental. So we'll talk about that in this sutta. So I think we would want to catch the spirit of the pedagogy and not get too hung up in the literalism of step one, step two, step three. Um, he repeatedly uses the phrase early on in, in the sutta, uh, the Tathagata disciplines a person thus. Tathagata means the Buddha. Um, so this word discipline, maybe we don't like that so much, but uh, that's a good translation of the Pali word, which is veneti. And that is related to the word vinya, uh, which is the monastic training rules. So we are talking about a monk here, but we're, again, using a non-literal, we can make an analogy to us as lay people also. Um, and so it means to train, you know, the training that we do, but also it uh, has a secondary meaning of giving up or letting go in, in the positive sense of releasing. So um, a person in the Buddhist training is successively giving up things in order to restrain their prior ways of behaving and thinking. And if you've practiced mindfulness, you might have a sense that the mind is a little bit like a wild horse when we start, and the restraint is kind of a good idea at the beginning. I don't know how many people have told me, oh, I tried, med that they learn I'm a meditation teacher, and they say, oh, I tried meditation once, I couldn't do it at all, my mind was everywhere, I just gave up immediately. So, you know, that can happen, but there are ways to, let's say, restrain that tendency of the mind. So um, we also have this image of a thoroughbred horse. It's not just any horse, not just any wild horse. Um, a thoroughbred horse is meant to imply something of uh, kind of high quality. And so, um, you know, something that can be trained. So people who are interested in meditation um, already, that's a sign that the mind is interested in something good. So there's this possibility of training. And then there are explicit steps. I'm not going to go through, through them in detail. This is about the usual gradual training that's described. There's training in ethical conduct. So restraint with the res, restrained with the restraint of the patimoka. So for us, that would be the precepts, you know, stopping the obviously harmful behaviors like killing and stealing and lying and things like that. And then there's guarding of the sense faculties so that we don't hear or see or smell something and just run off with it and um, immediately get entranced. We know this is an ongoing issue that we have to look at. Um, moderation in eating, uh, wakefulness, mindfulness and full awareness or mindfulness and clear comprehension of being aware during our daily life activities. All of these are trainings that we've probably undertaken in some way and know that they're ongoing practices we do. And then the last restraint is to resort to a secluded place. So being willing to withdraw from the social world in order to practice more deeply. So all of these are um, various. It has the, these doing these actions has the opportunity to restrain various unskillful behaviors that distract the mind. And so, you know, beyond the first step of ethical misconduct, we're talking about things that are not really unethical, but more in the realm of what Diana mentioned, kusala or akusala, things that are helpful or not helpful if you're wanting to liberate the mind from its uh, bondage, let's say, to breed hatred and delusion. So, you know, 
chatting late into the evening with your friends and playing a lot of video games. There's nothing unethical about that, but it's not very conducive to a good night's sleep, for example, or to having an undistracted mind when you sit down in meditation. So, you know, just being aware of how our activities affect the mind. Um, oh, and then just uh, some, I've, I've gotten run off on the, on the side trail talking about those because I think they're interesting. But uh, in the sutta, the, um, once the monk goes off to a secluded place, he or she is practicing uh, the jhanas and the insights that can lead to liberation. So um, this way of practice is a pleasant abiding for those who are arahants, and it's onward leading for those who are still aspiring to awakening. So like in MN29, I want to highlight that there's an, a process of going farther and farther inward. Right. So we start with obvious external behaviors uh, and then we go you know, more into looking at the mind, uh, more into subtle kinds of ways of living so that we can support meditation, living more quietly, um, not sleeping a lot, etc. Uh, kind of going more and more subtle. And then eventually we get to uh, mindfulness sitting down and practicing internally and developing concentration. So again, we have this idea of going towards things that are inward and more subtle. Similar notion of keep going, keep going, don't, you know, don't stop short. Um, but here in this case, the Buddha is supplying the external impetus to the person. You know, I restrain a person this way or I tell them to do this or that. It's not quite the same as the practitioner themselves needing to keep going and not get complacent with progress. So we have a slight difference in how the path is unfolded, even if it's going to the same end. And then there's a bit of a turn in section 12, where Ganakamogalana decides to ask, he says, when Master Gotama's disciples are thus advised and instructed by him, do they all attain Nibbana, the ultimate goal, or do some not attain it? An interesting question. We may have wondered this ourselves. Is there some kind of guarantee here? Or you know, what is all this for? Am I going to get there or what? So then the Buddha actually gives a very honest answer. And he says, some of my disciples attain Nibbana and some do not attain it. Whoa, that might get our attention. Um, so then we immediately have the question, okay, what's the difference? You know, how, how does that happen? So the Brahmin is also surprised, actually. And he says, well, wait a minute. I thought you were a good teacher. I thought you were there training them. What's up with actually admitting that some of them don't get there despite your training? This might have been unusual in the Buddha's time where, you know, spiritual teachers tend to claim, I've got the method. Um, you know, if you do this, it's going to work. And here the Buddha is frankly saying, well, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. How about that for, you know, we had a comment earlier about conceit and arrogance. And the Buddha's, I think, looking not, not conceited and arrogant there, uh, but very honest. So, um, so the Buddha uh, gives an analogy, again, to Gautam And here's, you know, maybe a, a, the second main analogy in the Sutta, he's, he analogizes to giving directions on a road, you know, and he says, uh, if you walk down the road, um, you know, you need to turn left at this town and then go right. And then eventually you will get to, in this case, Rajagaha, a big city of the time. 
Um, but some people don't get there because they might, what, veer off the road. We're not talking stopping short. You know, you stop at the bar and have a few drinks and decide to just live there for a while, um, which is what we talked about last week. This one would be like you get to the intersection and the directions say to turn left and you turn right. And then you're not going to get to the right city. So I think we all have some experience with this on the path. I do want to say immediately, though, that, you know, I know that some people are concerned about doing it right. That can be a big issue. So we're not talking about veering off in terms of, you know, you sit down and you have a lot of hindrances in your in your sit and you spend the whole time actually just working with your thinking mind. And you think, ah, oh, I'm not on the path. My mind is going nuts. I must have veered off somewhere. That's not actually quite, you know, that's, that's too... Uh, much of an assumption to make. This is veering off the path in a more serious way, like not following the instructions at all, following some other instructions, essentially. Uh, and David's going to talk more about um, how it is that we would do this, various mind states that lead us to veer off, distraction, arrogance, fear, doubt, you know, these kinds of things. Um, and we're almost at the end of my time here, but I want to point out that there's an, a footnote. Bhikkhu Bodhi gives a helpful footnote in um, uh, MN107 that refers back to MN63, 65. And that has another thoroughbred cult training uh, analogy. And I want to quote from that sutta because um, it says, sometimes when you're training a cult, like, so let's say you put the bit onto, you know, the thing in the horse's mouth, um, before while you're training it. And this is the first time you've ever put a bit onto the horse. And so it's like, you know, it doesn't like that. And it says in the sutta, because he is doing something he has never done before, he displays some contortion, writhing, and vacillation. But eventually he becomes peaceful in that action. So does this sound familiar? You know, it's like you sit down on the meditation cushion and the teacher says, follow your breath. And, you know, you've never done that before. And so your mind is like displays some contortion, writhing and vacillation about staying with the breath for 15 minutes. Right. It's not easy. So we have this understanding. We can imagine a horse, you know, they sort of go when you put on the bit. But then eventually, you know, you get to the place where the horse can wear the bit. It's okay. So this is an analogy for our minds. Does anybody see this? So, um, okay. So I'll wind up um, various ways that we can veer off the path if we if we're not able to follow the instructions, see them through, go through the contortions and eventually become peaceful. That's the direction we're looking to go in. I think we named this before, you know, does the mind yeah, go in the direction of gradually becoming more peaceful? So I guess I'll finish with uh, um, the Buddha says, OK, this is a, an analogy that Ganaka Mogalana can understand. Uh, he says, you know, if you tell someone how to get to Rajagaha and they don't get there, what's the problem? And Ganika Mogalana says, well, uh, what can I do about that, Master Gautama? I am the one who shows the way. And the Buddha says, it's the same thing. I give the instructions. Not everybody follows them. We see this echoed in Dhammapada 276. It is up to you to make strong effort. Tathagatas merely tell you how. Following the path, those absorbed in meditation will be freed from Mara's bonds. So that it is clear if we follow the path, there is the guarantee that we get there. The problem is that we don't always do that. So that's why, you know, it's, it's up to us to stay on it and to not veer off and not stop short. Okay. So thank you all.
Thank you, Kim. I loved this. I dated a horse. Getting <laughs> uncomfortable. I've never trained a horse, but uh, I can imagine any creature, myself included, not liking this. So now we'll um, like to put you into some breakout rooms to talk about this. But maybe I'll just add um, a few words onto what Kim said, which beautifully said. Thank you, Kim. I just really enjoyed hearing what you were saying. So this, uh, why do we veer off, and what helps us? to stay on track. What helps us to stay on track? And that'll be the question in the breakout room, but maybe I'll just build a little bit on what Kim said, that, you know, the Buddha is uh, showing us the path. And when we find ourselves having difficulties, for example, the mind is just not settling down in the way that we were expecting. The Buddha doesn't say, please beat yourself up you know, you allow your inner critic to get as loud as possible and follow it. Right? He's not saying that. He's not saying you're a bad person because you can't do this or anything like this. He's saying, no, just keep on coming back to the teachings or here's the teachings. And that is the path. The path is just to keep on coming back in whatever way you can. And the path is not to berate yourself or judge yourself or something like this if you find it difficult. Of course, it's difficult, right? We don't, otherwise, we wouldn't need a Buddha to point it out. And we would just say, oh, there's Rajagaha, go. And so I just want to highlight that because sometimes our inner critic can get loud when we uh, hear these things. So, and David will talk about uh, a little bit more about some of the reasons we may veer off, but I'll just uh, drop in one. Maybe we don't even like this idea of restraint. You know, like, no, we want to be wild and free, right? In some way, we have this idea that um, we don't want anything to be curbed for us. But this is, again, just staying on the path. So here's the question. You'll be in groups of uh, three or four, and you'll have 12 minutes. The question is, what helps you stay on track? What helps you stay on track? Maybe this path is very meaningful for you. Maybe you've seen some of the benefits. Maybe there's something in you that resonates with the teachings, even if 100% of it isn't exactly how you think it should be or something like this. And then the last thing I'll say is sometimes we get emails from people saying, why do you have to do small breakout groups? I don't want to go in breakout groups because people are giving me advice or because somebody's trying to convince me of something else. So just a reminder, we don't need to give advice to anybody. We Everybody gets to have their own thoughts. We don't have to all think exactly the same. So just a reminder, we'll just, this is an appreciation. This is an opportunity to love and appreciate and support each other. So just, throw that in there. So what helps you stay on track? And here we go. Okay, I think we're all finding our way back. So now we'd love to um, hear from you all. How was that to talk about what helps you to stay on track and to hear maybe some what some other people had to say or to even have that question? Maybe there was a question that you haven't asked yourself before. So we'd love to hear from some of you. How was it to uh, have this conversation about what helps you stay on track? You could raise your Zoom hand. 
I can't see everybody on the same um, screen. So if you raise your physical hand, you're, you may or may not be seen. I'll just uh, offer that. Mary. I really appreciated the comment of a person in our group, which was reiterated a few times with others that it's kind of like brushing your teeth. What's the alternative? So it just seems like such a basic part of our lives that it's unthinkable that it not be a priority and that it be kind of the groundwork from which everything else comes. So I found that comment helpful and really, um, really true. Thank you, Mary. Can you like uh, flesh out a little bit when you say it is like brushing your teeth? What, what is the it that uh, you're referring to? The commitment to practice, the nice. continuity, um, just doing it even when uh, we're too tired. We don't want to bother brushing our teeth. We're just too tired. I was saying I just had two weeks of back-to-back guests and just the continuity of even if I was too tired to sit for 45 minutes or an hour, as I was lying in bed, I would still be doing practice And even if it was just for 10 minutes in the morning, because that's all I had, you know, it's like I couldn't not do it because the day is so, um, so much fuller and progresses so much more easily, even if it's just a small moment, because I can't give it anymore. So it's that kind of commitment. Great, great. Thank you. Thank you. Charles Lee. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, we were in a, or I was in a wonderful, wonderful quartet and, uh, uh, it was, uh, it was an experience like that, that keeps me on the path. Uh, so Sangha, uh, the, the, seeing the devotion of, uh, you know, of, of, of our facilitators and, and teachers and also other practitioners. Uh, it's um, uh, that, that gives uh, so much energy. And I mean, on, on ret- you know, I, I find this happens on retreat for me um, where, you know, there are those times where it's like, oh, you know, I don't know if I can, you know, bear another sit, but, you know, see somebody else, uh, uh, you know, doing the same or, um, or, you know, asking a question that maybe I was too embarrassed to ask. And, uh, uh, and so, and, 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 and our, our group, I thought our group really modeled um, the, the speaking from, you know, my own experience, uh, which, and I know, you know, language is, is dicey and, you know, we were all taught, I, I think we're often taught not to, you know, maybe speaking, you know, saying I all of the time sounds a little bit weird, but it, you know, I find that it, it, it really, one, it doesn't, um, you know, put my experience on anybody else. So even as simple as, you know, just saying you, even though we all know you mean I, um, it still, uh, it still helps, but also for me, it also helps, uh, just accept and own my own experience. So it, it makes it that much closer when I talk about, you know, I, you know, I was feeling anxious, like then I, I can really own 
you know, own that experience, which has really helped my development and acceptance of myself uh, so much. Uh, and so, so yeah, so, you know, loved my group, uh, loved this group and uh, uh, it helps me keep on practicing. And then one other thing is that we also, a few of us answered kind of what, what tends to take us off the path. And for me, it's like, I don't know. It's it, recently it's been sports and sports highlights because I love sports and I'm watching too, you know, a lot of NBA playoffs and, you know, not getting in that evening sit sometimes, <laughs> but thanks. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Charles Lee. Thank you for highlighting what, you know, I think many of us have heard the Buddha says the spiritual friendship is all of the spiritual life or, you know, I'm paraphrasing there, but just the importance of the community that we're with and how without that, it's so hard to walk this path. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Charleston. Uh, Eileen. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm thinking about the previous um, sutta that we read. In fact, I was mentioning in my group that I probably wouldn't have even started reading suttas on my own. So I really appreciate classes where we got it sort of broke that ice for me. And um, what keeps me on the path a lot is um, the statement that was repeated in that sutta about five times, um, the, the one we did last time. Um, Surely there must be a way out of this suffering because I never used to think that. I used to think, you know, I'm miserable. You know, I'll distract myself, period. That was that was always it. Um, and I think a lot of that happens in our society. You know, you, you feel bad, you, you eat something or you, you know, buy something or you do something. But the idea that there could be a way out of this was what I... The, the new thing that I learned from this practice and having people to study with and practice with really helped me to see the importance of setting the intentions, which I now do in the mornings. And it makes a huge difference in how my day goes. Nice. So set, that part of the, the Eightfold Path to set intentions. Beautiful. So thank you. Setting intentions. Thank you. Thank you. And also pointing to uh, the role of other people practicing together. Yeah. I mean, the four of us have certainly discovered that's part of why uh, we keep on practicing together and teaching together is because we found the same thing. Yeah. I'm looking at uh, my co-teachers and I'm trusting that you will unmute yourself if you uh, want to say something. And otherwise I'm just going to keep on going. So, <laughs> uh, so Akmarol, and this will be the last one. So one question that I brought up in the group and, um, and I'll bring up here as well is this um, specific sutta also, it seems um, the first question that comes to my mind is how do I apply this to my life? You know, to get this lay life that clearly I'm not, I mean, there's such a gulf between a me and a monastic that goes anywhere and, and kind of it the feeling that this arises or the, the feeling that arises in me is that, oh, this is so far away. This is unattainable. This is not for me. I will never get there. To, like, to be honest, that's, that's a reaction that, that is, it brings out uh, because I'm not a monastic and I'm never going to be one probably. And um, how um, do you see that kind of as, as maybe others as well, you know, 
that question or that any any um, anything that you can share. Mm-hmm. I think this is a legitimate question. Like, is this uh, transferable to those of us that are householders, quote unquote, rather than monastics? And maybe we could um, ask ourselves the the maybe the look at the question from the opposite direction. You're saying you're so different from a monastic, but what are the ways in which you are the same? Maybe there's this way in which, okay, you want to find greater freedom and peace and you want it to have a role in your life. So maybe what does it mean to follow the, to be ethical, to follow the ethical rules for us, right? We can do this. What does it mean to have sense restraint for those of us? Maybe it means that we're like not always shopping on the internet or, you know, there might be some modern day or householder equivalent of that. What are the ways we can be like devoted to wakefulness and moderate and eating? Like we can do these things too, not indulging, our senses all the time, just doing what feels good simply because it feels good or these types of things. So uh, I appreciate what you're saying. We're not monastics. None of us here are, but um, also we could ask the question, well, in what ways are we similar without having to ordain, right? We, we're not saying that you have to ordain, but um, to make this a priority in our lives in a way that fits our life. And maybe the last thing I'll say here, oh, Kim's unmuted. Excellent. She has something to say. Uh, last thing I'll say is um, let's watch if there's a, ever this inner critic that comes up that says, oh, I should be like a more like a monastic. It's just that I'll just say that and I'll hand it over to Kim. Great. Thank you. Um, I really just have something to add to Diana's excellent comment, which is that we, I can understand that from the suttas we read, you would you might have a response like that because they are addressed to monastics and they go through kind of the monastic um, training, at least this one that we're on now, I'm in 107. Uh, but there are a number of other suttas, actually quite a lot of them, um, and we've maybe highlighted them in other classes where the Buddha that are addressed to lay people or householders and the Buddha gives very similar instructions. There are many cases where he teaches householders how to meditate, or he extols that householders have achieved certain stages of awakening. Um, so in, in the teachings as a whole, there isn't a sense that um, householders you know, are, are inevitably, irrevocably barred from these other things. So um, it's a fair question, and luckily the broader suttas um, have different things to say. So thank you. And then with that, we'll hand it over to Ying. Okay. Well, that's a nice segue into a a little period of meditation. And this invitation uh, that I have uh, is right off this question that Akamara posted uh, in terms of how we practice. How do we find the path? And so if, um, if you like, maybe just allow yourself to find a spot where you can sit quietly, maybe for 10 minutes or so. And at the beginning of this meditation, I invite you to be generous to yourselves. arriving here and arriving now. 
Maybe you still need to move the body a little bit to settle into here and now. Or maybe a few long deep breaths will allow you to arrive a little more fully. Being very generous and kind in this initial moments of our meditative practice. The mind may be wandering in thoughts still without the evocation of the inner critic, and we simply trusting, arriving at the present moment through the body. And this path we've been describing, sharing, is a revealed here and now. Becoming present and mindful to our embodied experience. Maybe we can begin by turning the attention to the pelvic area where the body makes a contact with the floor, chairs, finding our seat in the body, Receiving the sensations of the body making contact. Allow this earthy body resting on earth.
the earth elements in the body is naturally grounding, settling. As we rest in the present experience, aware, mindful, collected, the Dharma becomes visible right here. In the sensations of the body, in the movements of the breath, in the contact of the body with the floor, and staying connected. with this felt sense experience. Path is revealed a scene right here. Noticing that how when we're connected with the immediacy of our lived experience, the heart can be more at ease. Maybe a heart and mind can be more at ease. Sitting like a tall redwood, rooted, upright, If doubting questions come along, can I do this? I'm not good enough. 
you allow the thoughts to breathe through, or you stay connected, rooted, I want to offer this little reading from the monastery within. A little Zen story about doubts, doubting voice. A nun came to the abbess complaining that doubt was her primary challenge along the Buddhist path. She had a doubt about the path itself, about the teachings, about her teachers, and most importantly, about her own ability to succeed in the Buddhist practice. Your problem, said the abbess, is not, uh, uh, your problem, said the abbess, is that you don't doubt enough if you are going to the trouble of doubting then continue your doubting but do it more thoroughly please also doubt your doubt Do we dare to doubt our doubts? Do we dare to trust this moment here and now? And this is enough. This is where the path is found. There is a monastery within each of us and we can enter whenever we like. Thank you, Ying, for um, sort of guiding us to the monastery within. It's a very nice uh, balance, I think, to Akmaral's question earlier about we're not monastics, but the monastery within, a a book by Gill, suggests that the path is within, the, uh, the monastery is within. 
And as we explore these suttas so rich in similes, as Kim pointed out at the outset, um, they're not probably meant to be taken literally, and they're meant to be taken in many different ways. And um, so the monastery, the path, the thoroughbred horse, the development of a profession, the uh, the path to Rajagaha, all are, all are similes to be held in ways that support our practice. Um, I begin with a digression, but let me go back to where Kim left us in the sutta. Uh, it's, it's quite a lovely passage. And as we end today, we'll suggest once again, that kind of rereading these may be, may be something that you'll find useful in your, in your, in your practice and in doing this class with us together. But um, the Buddha, after, um, after his uh, interlocutor, after Ganaka uh, Moggallana has discovered for himself with the Buddha's questions that, oh, right, he's just pointing out the direction from one place to another. He can't make people go there. The Buddha then echoes that, and possibly Kim read this uh, earlier, but um, the Buddha says, so too, Moggallana, Nibbana exists, and the path leading to Nibbana exists, and I'm present as a guide. The Buddha is there as a guide. Yet when my disciples have been thus advised and instructed by me, some of them attain Nibbana, the ultimate goal, and some don't. What can I do about that? The Tathagata, the Buddha, is one who shows the way. And what follows in the next couple passages, it's as if uh, Ganaka Moggallana sort of hears this. There is Nibbana. There is a path. The Buddha shows the way. And then he looks around and he looks at who are the people who are on the path with the Buddha. And here there's a nice division of responsibility. The Buddha has sort of said his responsibility for practices goes this far. He can show the way. Walking the way, making the way unfold, creating a path, creating a monastery within, those responsibilities fall to uh, the practitioner and maybe to the community of practice like that gathered here today. Um, and in first a negative and then a positive passage, the, uh, the, not, not the Buddha, but Ganaka Moggallana sort of realize, oh, okay, if I look around the Buddha, the people I see have the following characteristics. And here I'm quoting from the Bhikkhu Bodhi translation. It says, these are people that have gone into homelessness. That is, they've created a monastery within, and in some cases without a monastery around them, out of faith, not out of faithlessness, out of commitment, out of confidence. They've moved toward this practice. They have... Um, practiced good virtuous conduct, particularly wise speech is mentioned. They're not, he says, loose spoken. They're devoted to wakefulness. They're concerned with seclusion. They're greatly respectful of training. They're not careless. They're keen to avoid backsliding. They are energetic, resolute, established, well-established in mindfulness, fully aware, concentrated. Their minds are unified. They possess wisdom. And he says, Master, Master Gotama dwells together with these. So this is the company that the Buddha keeps. And I just want to point out here that what, um, what uh, Ganaka Moggallana has just done for himself is restate the gradual training that Kim described earlier. 
he sees in the Buddha's community of practice, the gradual training being practiced. And again, here it's interesting. It's not linear. It's a group of char- It's a collection of characteristics of the people that Ganaka Mogalana just sees are, are gathered around the Buddha. And it's interesting that he points out that these are people, practitioners, but in a way what surrounds the Buddha is practice, is the gradual training, is sitting in meditation, virtuous conduct, a community of, of Dharma friends. So moving from that to sort of what veering off the path might uh, look like in our own cases, which is what Kim promised, I'd say. So I should say something about that instead of just getting lost in the beautiful language of the sutta. <laughs> um, but in a sense, that's our context. In other words, veering off the past means in various ways, finding ourselves estranged maybe from some of the practice that is described first in a kind of a linear fashion and then as characteristics of the community of practice that surrounds the Buddha. But to kind of put this in our own terms, um, veering off the path and uh, Charles Lee mentioned the distraction by uh, you know following uh, March Madness. Um, distraction is perhaps the first thing that comes to mind. And distraction, as we all know, uh, comes in myriad disguises. Uh, sometimes it's very obvious. Sometimes we're aware we're distracting ourselves, right? And other times, um, you know, we only realize after a period of time that that distraction has happened. But the Buddha also points here to um, other things that maybe lie under distraction or that maybe uh, are, are some in some cases different. For example, complacency. Um, We all find ourselves, I think, at plateaus in practice sometimes where maybe we're not sure what to do next, but maybe we're just comfortable with where we are and we get a little complacent. You might say lazy, but the Buddha, at least in this sutta, he doesn't cast any aspersions on practice or practitioners. This is the natural course of practice. We have have a good map. (laughs) We know that an endpoint exists, but, you know, for various reasons, we find ourselves... um, veering away from from those instructions. There could be a lack of discipline or commitment, and that can come up with complacency, where we find, oh, you know, when we look into it carefully, we realize we've lost track of the goal. Maybe we lost track of why we started the path, which we wanted to kind of seed in our first uh, section on Tuesday with our question for for the breakout group. Why did you start? Always checking in. Somebody mentioned earlier today the importance of intention, setting intention for each sit, for a period of practice, for a retreat, for this month, for the next five minutes, (laughs) for the whole path, you know. Um, Somebody mentioned in the chat just a few minutes ago, uh, being overwhelmed by the teachings. This is a really good point. You know, there's a lot of teachings out there, right? Um, There's a lot of different things that get introduced in our scene. Even if you stick really kind of to one, you know, lineage or one teacher, there's a lot of different teachings. Um, they can become overwhelming. Sometimes they they almost always seem more complex than they really are. <laughs> but they they do sometimes overwhelm us with either the volume, the fire hose of the teachings, or you know, with their intricacy or their, you know, some some way we don't get them, or the fact that a lot of times we don't get them until we experience them, then they're clear. But until we um so sometimes Related to this can be the habit we sometimes find ourselves in of trying a lot of different teachings. Oh, you know, mindfulness of the breath, it's kind of, it's not working or I don't know. So I'm going to, 
you know, I'm going to do something else that I read about. Or these are ways, again, everybody here, I would uh, certainly I can speak, I think, for myself safely, but possibly for my teaching colleagues, too, that, you know, this is just something that happens. You, you, you explore different things. And, and uh, it's, it's sometimes you find that some of those explorations lead you away and, in fact, turn out to be distractions, either willful or completely uh, un, unknown to ourselves, unconscious. Another thing I think that happens is wanting to proceed at a quick pace in order to get to this destination. And I, as uh, Akmaral asked her question, I look back at the text and the Buddha says, continue from Rajagaha, continue on this path for a while and you will come to a town. Continue for a while and then you'll come to a village. He doesn't tell us how long. You know, um, and it's interesting to uh, think that there's something very easeful there about the time. Oh, continue for a while. Um, I, I get the impression that part of what's being expressed there is there's no hurry. Which is an interesting way to take it. Possibly um, the path is more about where we are here now than it is uh, about tracking sort of um, the where we are from where we began and the, the destination. Um, in the in the simile, as it's put in the sutta, uh, I think something that's really important, in addition to the things I've mentioned, is mistaking the goal. You know, very easy to see whether it's a, another shiny thing or just thinking that it's something that it's not. I think as you experience some of the insights that can come with practice, uh, they have quite a different flavor sometimes than that which we expected. And so some, it's easy to mistake the goal and get, move away from where we are practicing to something we think is out there in front of us. And um, in the simile, he has the, uh, the practitioner heading off into the West, taking the wrong turn <clears throat> and going to the West. To me, what comes to mind is the sort of going off into the sunset. Oh, it looks nice over there. I'm going to get a Mai Tai, put my feet up, find the sunset, listen to the waves. Very easy to just kind of, um, think that we, that that's, that that's the, that that's the aim. Um, a couple more minutes, but I'll just say that stopping short also sort of shows up in this simile. There is a, we, we chose two different kind of aspects of the practice, but it, I think Kim mentioned it would be really easy to kind of, um, stop for a while in the village or the town and, uh, you know, get caught up in events there, maybe, um, find oneself affianced to an attractive partner, settle down, raise a family, develop a perf- Anyway, you get what I'm saying. Be very easy to sort of, um, you know, uh, stop along the way. So th- those are implicit in this metaphor that you got to keep going. That's where it's different, but that, yeah, you could stop short in any number of attractive places along the way. So to sort of summarize here and leave kind of with, you know, sort of a positive positive message of encouragement. Um, I think this, like all of the practice, you know, it's very easy to focus on the things that are going wrong. But this is this is a this this uh, sutta is full of encouragement. And I would I would say there's three principal messages of encouragement. One, the Buddha tells us. There is a path from here to Nibbana. That he says in his voice. Second, he points the way. There is a path and he knows it and he shares it. 
open-heartedly. Um, and so the message, both explicit and implicit, is to keep going. Keep returning to that gradual training and its various aspects. Whatever needs attention, that's where your practice is. Um, if we follow the Buddha's instructions, we're not going to get lost. We may briefly find ourselves, you know, off in a rut. And yet we, you know, get back onto the path. Um, I think some of what we hear, too, in the sutta is that we're safe and we're on the path when we're in the Buddhist company, that is, in the company of the teachings. And that we're in a, in a good way, in a good path, when we're keeping close to Dharma friends, as, for example, right here and right now. And just to leave it with something that I was inspired to say uh, as Ying guided us was, what would it be like if when we discover, as inevitably will, we will, that we veered from the path, that we return to the path as we're instructed, as we uh, train ourselves to return to the breath, when we find a mind caught up in something in meditation? We just return gently. We return with an open heart, with compassion, um, and pick up again where, where we were and where we are, where we find ourselves. We can, we can bring ourselves back into the path of practice with the same gentleness, without beating ourselves up, as one of us said earlier, um, without feeling like it's such a bad thing to veer off the path. Just like coming back to the breath. No hurry. Going to be doing it over and over again. But instead of going round and round in a circle of samsara, we can feel ourselves securely on the path from, from here to Rajakaha. Thank you, David. I hope that maybe uh, gives us a picture of how this applies more explicitly, more directly to our own path, our own life, our own practice that we're all engaged in here. So we just wanted to open it up um, at this point to see if there are any lingering questions or comments um, on what we've learned and discussed today about this um, MN107, the discourse to Kanaka Mogalana and the idea of staying on the path. So please, um, you can raise, raise your hand in some way, hopefully electronically is best. Kevin, was that your hand? No, it wasn't. You're just leaning forward. Or other thoughts that may be sparked from the various things that David brought in and also Ying's reading about doubt and doubting our doubt. And yeah, Mariah. Thank you guys so much for this. First of all, I wanted to thank you. It was just beautiful. And the guided meditation was wonderful. Um, as you're talking, David, I became aware that in terms of veering off, what happens with me the most is that underneath, whether it's distraction or whatever it might look like on the surface, the way that I veer off, underneath it all, it just seems like it's I withhold a part of my heart from the experience because I'm afraid. And I'm always reminded of something Gil said to me, which was just let your heart unfreeze. Let it melt. And that seems to be a very slow process. <laughs> so 
Um, I just wanted to say that. Thank you. I, I think that's a really important point. And <clears throat> Kim, you may want to say something too, but um, yeah, you know, and that's something I didn't say, but might've said, uh, which is just that it's, it's like that whole thing about primary and secondary emotions that when we notice distraction or boredom or one of these kind of vague things going on in practice, it can be useful to explore, be curious uh, without being judgmental just to say, Oh, Oh, there's some fear here. Fear is really common in practice. It's, it's frightening to, to let go. And uh, each, each, each letting go can arise with us with some, if not fear, some concern, some quite comprehensible and reasonable, you know, worry about what it might be like to live differently. So anyway, I think you raise a really good point. And so when distraction comes up, it's good to be curious. What, what is this? What is being feared or what, what, you know, what, what isn't, what doesn't want to be seen? What is their aversion around? What do I want that's different from what's here, et cetera? Thanks for that. Great. Thank you. Um, uh, Winnie. I think um, one of the thing, one of the big takeaway I got from Tuesday and today is that you know sometimes I focus too much on the techniques and I realize that um, it has to start with the heart and without that intention being very explicit, uh, all you do is just get stuck in the techniques. And, and that's when you begin to have doubts, you know, and then you try another technique and you try this, but you left out the hard part. Mm. So nicely said, you know, we have so many different um, dimensions of ourselves that we're bringing to practice. And you've highlighted, I think this idea of using a technique is often based in the cognitive mind that has, you know, figured out what it needs to do. It's got the plan, etc. Oh, now I do this when this happens. And it works for a little while. And sometimes it's a good way to start, you know, for a little bit. Somebody said overwhelming the teaching. So you just, you pick a technique, you do it. Um, but over time, uh, if we're really honest with our mindfulness, we will start to see that there's something else operating besides our thinking mind and our techniquing mind. Um, and that is uh, maybe associated with the heart side, the heart that has a, a yearning, a longing, something that is a visceral feeling of this sense of wanting to move toward Nibbana, wanting to find the freedom. And if we don't eventually include that, we don't have enough juice like our car is going to run out of gas before we can get all the way there. So we have to um, add in that part, as you said, and it comes in different orders for different people sometimes. Um, But I love that you've highlighted that and realized that there are these different dimensions of practice. Diana. Yeah. I just wanted to maybe build on what uh, Winnie said. I appreciate this very much. What Winnie and both Kim are saying, but maybe I can play around with language a little bit and say, when he said, you have to start with the heart. And I could, and I might say, how you start with the heart is to start where you are. Like whatever is happening is where we practice. And that's one way of kind of like bringing in the heart as opposed to the mind saying, oh, it should be this or shouldn't be that. But maybe that's just a 
playful way to kind of look at it. We just start where we are. And that's how we start with the heart. Yeah, it's a good point. I see Ying is also unmuted. Yeah, I just uh, appreciate uh, both Kim and and Diana's uh, response. And also uh, in the uh, Chinese culture, um, the heart and mind is the same character of the the, character heart. (laughs) And so... Sometimes when I think about mindfulness and I'm kind of simultaneously will say heartfulness. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they're kind of, you know, they don't have to have very black and white kind of lines drawn to it. But the some part of us has this sort of intuitive sense of a knowing that Diana spoke about last time. You know, like a hint of it or, uh, you know, your heart's yearning. Great. Thank you. Um, so there's a short one. Okay, why don't we go ahead, David? I was just going to say, so to bring things to a close, and we like to, with our, with raised, uh, what, what do I want to say, with a wink maybe, to um, suggest that there might be some useful homework done between now and Saturday, uh, but with a smile. But reviewing these suttas now with what we've said and experienced and talked about in the rooms and practiced within meditation uh, may be something that that you'll you'll find new richness in them. Uh, I looked at the sutta this morning and found new things, commented to somebody I live with that, yeah, it's like always new. There's always something new. Um and they're, they're, they're meant to be that way. They're meant to be alive in our practice. So just reviewing them, which sounds like a homework assignment, but do it with the, you know, practice in mind. And then on Saturday, we're going to get into a little bit more kind of how to, we call it here, applications to our own practice. And I think something I just bring us back to Ying's meditation today and, the, and, uh, well, who, I guess it was Kim's on, on Tuesday, just that, um, it's easy to conceive that this is about these suttas are about the path getting to, Nibbana. They're also about meditation. So watching how these things come up just in a 15, 20 minute, half hour, hour long sit between now and Saturday, just watch the stopping short, the veering off. It's a natural part of our practice that we correct for. We use this wisdom of the practice to kind of recenter, come back to the path, keep going. And uh, so think about it maybe in daily life, but also in as you meditate, just what, how do these things come alive in your practice? That's in the sense how we try to bring this study into our practice or one way we do that. So see you Saturday. Uh, we hope to maybe have some additional and new people who, for whom this isn't a, a good time during to the week to practice. And uh, we look forward to a, a, a nice Saturday morning with everyone. Take care. Feel free to unmute and say ciao. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you. Bye-bye. Hope everyone does well. Thank you. Thank you, Winnie. Thank you.